Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today it's another Member Drive special edition of the program. Our guest is former NPR Moscow Bureau Chief Corey Flintoff. We're going to talk about the war in Ukraine, the situation in Russia, and about reporting on war. Corey Flintoff is a former NPR foreign correspondent whose assignments include Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. He was uh, NPR Southeast Asia Bureau Chief and Moscow Bureau Chief. Born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska, now lives in Maryland. Corey Flintoff, uh, thanks for joining us again on Access Utah. <laughs> Good morning, Tom. It's really a pleasure to be back on the air with you. And thanks for all you do for UPR. You're instrumental in the Corey Flintoff Student Internship Fund, for example. That's one of the great honors of my career. Well, uh, let's, of course, talk about Ukraine and Russia. You, um, you've reported from, I think, reported from Ukraine and Russia. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was the Moscow bureau chief from uh, 2012 to 2016. And, of course, that encompassed uh, the seizure, the Russian seizure of Crimea, um, the uh, Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine, uh, the crash of the Malaysian airliner MH17. So I was in, um, in Ukraine and especially in eastern Ukraine quite a lot during those years. Uh, so you've uh, you've been in some of these places. Yes, I've been in almost all of them, actually, and and I've been in Mariupol, for instance, a couple of times. Uh, uh, this was during the the first Russian incursion into uh, eastern Ukraine, and uh, there, of course, was fighting going on then uh, outside Mariupol. But uh, I do remember it as being a, a really nice and interesting sort of seaside and industrial town and it's just a tragedy that it's it's been destroyed yeah this in some other towns as well but mariupol i guess principal among the just 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 tragic there do you uh do you know you still keep in touch with folks in ukraine yes no folks yeah yeah absolutely and um i mean the word is not good of course uh you know i'm in touch with people for instance that i worked with uh who were our fixers in uh, Eastern Ukraine and in and, and other parts of the country, and they're very busy these days, as you can imagine. But um, you know that while we were probably more aware than most of the the Russian aggression against Ukraine, I think everybody was surprised at the uh, at the just sheer ferocity of this attack. Right. Essentially, uh, Russia has invaded before. Of course, in, in, in the Donbass region, it was supporting, you know, supposed breakaway rebels, right? And uh, Crimea, I guess, was they had an election, uh, you know, to sort of paper over things. This was a straight out, uh, you know, in, invasion. Yeah, I, I should say, and, I, you know, I think we we don't see it in the media enough these days, um, this is not something new. This is well, this war against Russian war against Ukraine has been going on for more than eight years now, um, and it has been unceasing in eastern Ukraine because, uh, uh, of course, I keep in touch with my my former friends and or my former sources and my friends there, and um, every day for the last eight years, there hardly a day has gone by that there weren't artillery strikes on the line between um, Donetsk and, and Luhansk and the rest of the country. So this is nothing new. 
And I should add, you know, we've also kind of forgotten what happened in Crimea and in in eastern Ukraine. Um, I was in both places uh, at the time. I was not in, in Crimea at the time it was seized, but I was there shortly afterwards. And that was a, a case of pure Russian subversion. Um, you know, the the Russians, as you may as you may recall, you know, they, they flooded the, the area with uh, sort of with soldiers without ID that they called little green men. Um, and at the time, Putin insisted that these were not Russians, you know, and uh, it was very difficult for the international media to, to figure out how to characterize what was going on. But what it was was a stealth invasion of Crimea, um, a takeover of the uh, Crimean legislature, uh, the installation of pro-Russian puppet uh, leaders, and then an absolutely illegal, uh, illegally conducted so-called referendum in which um, very few, uh, a relatively few people in Crimea voted for annexation by Russia. And the same was true in eastern Ukraine. Uh, it's we, the media, unfortunately, have characterized this as a separatist rebellion, but really, and and I I am an eyewitness to this. It was subversion by Russian agents who came in and instigated these takeovers of of town halls, and recruited um, local criminals and uh, local opportunists. Uh, to be the face of this takeover. So um, this has been a great case of Russian aggression from the very beginning, and we should never forget that. So I guess you, you know, we could have predicted that maybe more of the same, just encroaching bit by bit more of Ukraine. Were you surprised by the, you know, the, the full-on invasion? Yes, to be honest, I was. Um, you know, even when uh, it was clear that Russia was massing these troops on the on the borders, um, we've seen that before. You know, Russia conducts these uh, these so-called uh, maneuvers, you know, almost on a yearly basis. This one just happened to be, you know, quite substantially larger. Um, and so I thought it was just another intimidation tactic whereby Russia would. Uh, would try to force some more concessions out of Ukraine. But um, clearly, that wasn't the case. And uh, it came as a surprise to a lot of people I know inside Ukraine and Russia as well. I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, culture and and the the people. Uh, Mr. Putin's contention is there is no Ukraine. There is no separate culture. You know, uh, it's, it's all Russian. Yeah, and that's absolutely untrue. Um, the, the funny thing about Ukraine, I've been reading a lot of history of Ukraine, is that um, that area, you know, if you if you went back and, you know, one of Putin's claims is that it, it's been Russian, you know, since uh, Catherine the Great's time, at least, and, and uh, going back to the foundation of Kiev itself, uh, you know, he claims that, uh, that it's always been Russian in that sense. But in fact, the, that area has been all kinds of things. You know, you, the Lithuanians could claim that it was Lithuanian at one point because they had an empire that stretched all the way to the Black Sea. The Poles could claim it too, and the, 
all these parts of Ukraine that have now been united uh, used to go by all kinds of names. There was Podolia and Ruthenia and Galicia. So uh, all these arguments, uh, Putin's arguments are really fallacious. Uh, there is, there is, of course, there's a cultural connection between Russians and Ukrainians, but they are not the same people by any means. And the formation of the borders of modern Ukraine makes a lot of sense in a, in a linguistic and cultural sense. Um, Putin claimed that, pointed out the Bolsheviks were the ones who, who more or less laid out the modern borders of Ukraine uh, after the Russian Revolution. But um, they did it um, on pretty good, uh, pretty good authority. I mean, it made sense as a as a country. And it still makes sense as a country. And now, of course, uh, after all the aggression from from Putin, uh, it's more united and more of a country than it's ever been. Hmm. What do you make of the uh, Ukrainian resistance? It seems, I don't know, we don't know for sure. It seems to have surprised Mr. Putin. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 this also surprised me, although I must say that, uh, you know, in the, in the years that I covered the war in eastern Ukraine, I saw a considerable improvement in the quality of the Ukrainian military. Um, you know, highly motivated volunteers, for instance, who uh, really wanted training. And I, I did a story about, uh, you know, U.S. units training Ukrainian soldiers in the, in the uh, western part of Ukraine, close to the, to the uh, Polish border. And uh, those uh, volunteers that I saw there saw there were really highly motivated. So what's happened now is that there's been almost nine years of Ukrainians gaining combat experience against the Russians in eastern Ukraine. Um, you know, and as somebody pointed out to me, there are about nine hundred. I think. Well, let me get this right. There are something like nine hundred thousand Ukrainian reservists who at some point or another in the last eight years saw uh, military service in eastern Ukraine. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of military tactical experience in that group, and uh, I think that's showing itself up now. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very motivated army as opposed to the conscript army that uh, Putin apparently sent you know, against them. Of course, just uh, horrible destruction, especially in the south. I mean, all areas of the country, and uh, a stream of refugees um, now. And uh, President Biden has announced the U.S. is going to take hundred thousand. Other nations taking others in. Can't predict the future. What um, I guess it it depends on if if there's a settlement soon or if this drags on for years and decades. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that surprised me, though, is after after Biden made the announcement, um, you know, I heard news reports of refugees saying that they wouldn't take him up on it because they wanted to return home and they felt that coming to the United States would put them too far away from home. So uh, it's interesting to me that, that even people who have suffered horrible losses, uh, lost their homes, seen their cities destroyed, um, are anticipating coming back home. I, I think that's a, you know that's a really a good omen for uh, the future of Ukraine as a country. 
Um, of course, again, we can't know what what do you think is the most likely outcome? The headlines today is uh, some progress in peace talks. Or we don't know that's up and down, right? Uh, is this likely to get resolved, do you think, and within a you know few months, or does it just settle into a decade-long conflict? You know, I honestly don't know, but um, I have no confidence whatever in the, the Kremlin's negotiations. I think at this point, in fact, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, um, has said very recently in the last couple of days that, you know, he doesn't see any concessions being made or anything like that. So I think what they're signaling is that, you know, yeah, they're they're perfectly willing to say they're talking, but at the same time, they're going to continue uh, the aggression that's going on already, and they're going to try to consolidate, um, make up for some of the losses that they suffered in, in northern Ukraine, uh, and, and try to consolidate and concentrate their forces in the east. But I don't trust uh, the Kremlin's negotiating posture at all. Um, I'd like to think that, um, you, know, I, you know, I think that has to happen. And I, and I hate to say this because it's a kind of a, it, it's an aggressive pro-war stance. And I don't like to be on that side of things because I've seen seen wars and, uh, you know, they're not the solution to anything. But um, I think what has to happen, given the destruction that Russia has caused in Ukraine, given the war crimes that Russia has carried out in Ukraine, um, I don't see how this can end successfully for the West or for the nation of Ukraine unless Putin is defeated not simply deterred, not simply forced back to his original positions, but defeated. Um, Because how can we morally accept um, making deals with a war criminal, um, a genocidal war criminal, um, without somehow encouraging him and encouraging other totalitarians around the world? What does what does that look like in in your view? Putin defeated. You said you know not just push back to the original uh, you know position, but uh, what does that look like? Well, um, I think it looks like the collapse of the Russian economy, um, the collapse of Putin's government, um, possibly uh, some kind of regime regime change in Russia. Um, you know, it might also lead to a wider war. I mean, that's obviously the big fear of leaders in the West. Uh, Nobody wants a wider war, not to say I mentioned a a nuclear war. But I honestly think that we're at at the same position that the West was in during the rise of Adolf Hitler. Um, You know, the the kind of of sort of bare-faced aggression and, uh, and seizure of territory that occurred during World War II. I think that's happening. I think we're already in a in a war. Um, Putin has been making war against us in in various ways, um, a propaganda war, you know, cyber war. Um, and I think what we have to face now is that we are on the verge of a of a military war, and I hope we can conduct it without it it spreading wider. But I think that we need to be 
we need to accept that we're going to have to um, do everything we can to defeat Putin. Mm. I want to. I was going to ask you this later in the hour, but I, I want to bring this forward now. Um, and that is the the short attention span of the West, the short attention span of <laughs> of those of us in the U.S. Um, you know, riveted attention now, but uh, if this drags on, uh, is that a fear that you perhaps have? We'll, we'll just our attention will kind of just drift away. Yeah, I and I just saw a rather dispiriting um, study that said that uh, the American attention span for these kinds of things is usually about six weeks. Um, and we're almost there. Um, you know, people frankly get tired of it and, uh, you know, get tired of seeing it on their screens. And uh, that's unfortunate uh, because, uh, you know, we do have moral obligations to the rest of the world. Um, you know, and I, I think that we need to meet those obligations. And I'm not sure how we as as uh as a people, as a nation, you know, and we especially in media, um, keep this up. Uh, nobody wants to be a warmonger. You know? Nobody wants to to be promoting violence. But um, And that's one of the problems that, that democracies and, and the free world has, is, you know, that we have to abide by moral norms and uh, the totalitarians of the world don't have to or they they don't accept them so um but i I think the the important thing that we can do as media is kind of alert people to the fact that we are already at a moral crisis here Um, and i think we all need to step up well, let's uh, let's make a transition. Of course, much more to say in this hour. We have Corey Flintoff for the hour, so we're grateful for that. Uh, he's a former Moscow bureau chief, and he's reported from Russia and from Ukraine. Uh, now is uh, lives in Maryland, uh, retired from NPR. Um, but I want to transition to uh, our other purpose for this hour, which is to to raise money for UPR. Um, so I want to uh, start that with with uh, just asking you uh, about resources. NPR obviously has, uh, in a time of declining uh, international reporting, has made a decision to uh, you know to lean on it. And he got I don't know how many uh, seventeen bureaus around the world. Um, a lot of resources yeah. right now in Ukraine and Russia, for example. Oh, I, I have been so proud of NPR's response to this. You know, they've sent uh, some of our absolutely best reporters uh, to Ukraine and and to the region. They've sent uh, uh, hosts to the region, and I think they'll do much more of that. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's that's really important. Um, it's important for our listeners to get firsthand reporting from these areas. It's important for our reporters and our hosts to see this, you know, to get away from the the desk in Washington and see at least parts of um, of these conflicts in person. I thought Mary Louise Kelly, for instance, did a wonderful job during her her visit, and Ari Shapiro has as well. You know that that's all really important because that informs our audience. And we inform ourselves at the same time. And very few news organizations can afford to do this anymore. NPR can afford to do it because we have so much grassroots support 
all over the country, and we we couldn't do it without them. Um, and that grassroots support, of course, includes uh, stations like UPR and our, our members. I assume you would say. Absolutely right. You know, the, I uh, I came to NPR from a member station in Alaska. Well, from two of them, two public radio stations in Alaska. So I know how. <laughs> You know, we have these relatively shoestring operations. I mean, compared to um, a lot of commercial broadcasting, and uh, we really are running on pretty thin strings. Um, but we're able to do it because our listeners um, are so supportive, and it's so important to have. You know, if you're if you're listening, and if you use Utah Public Radio. Every day, the way I use my public stations here in the in the Washington D.C. area, then you know that you really need to step up now and show your support for your station, and that means making a, a contribution. Well, here's how to do that, and thank you, Corey Flintoff. UPR.org. UPR.org is the place to go. That's our website, UPR.org. You can look at all our thank you gifts there, for example. Uh, or you can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And your pledge right now in any amount helps. Um, you're, you're, you become part of the coverage from Ukraine and Russia. You You help. With that and all of the great reporting, Wild About Utah and Beehive Archive and uh, Access Utah and all of the programs, uh, you're supporting now in whatever amount that uh, you can uh, you can afford right now. The important fact is that you pick up the phone and call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. Before we go to break, Corey Flintoff, I wonder, do you remember, did you... Did you pledge to the local station in Alaska, or what, when did that happen first time for you? <laughs> well, it happened uh, when I when I first went to work for uh, a station in Bethel, Alaska, in, in sort of southwestern Alaska, uh, which would be in 1977. And I have been a member of my local public radio station wherever I lived uh, ever since then, and a contributor. And... Um, <laughs> It is. I mean, it's just force of habit now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and now that I am a private citizen, uh, it's sort of even more important to me because, uh, you know, I, I, my, my connection light to the world, like everyone else's, is through my public radio stations. Well, join your support with uh, Corey Flintoffs and uh, pledge now to Utah Public Radio, upr.org, upr.org, or 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. A range of thank you gifts there, by the way. Uh, one of the most popular is our new UPR art mug. Uh, Teresa Jordan it was the winning artist. You may remember her or think of her as, uh, as a writer. Um, she's also an artist, and uh, so she sent in from Southern Utah a beautiful design, and that was the winning design. That's on our latest mug. $8 a month is the level there, $8 a month. UPR.org, 800-826-1495, and thank you in advance. We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today it's a Member Drive special edition of the program. We're talking about Russia, Ukraine, reporting on war. And our guest is former NPR Moscow bureau chief Corey Flintoff. 
Uh, Corey Flintoff was there reporting uh, from Russia and Ukraine um, during the 2014 uh, invasion uh, by Russia, and that it's just been continuing, as he's been uh, pointing out, uh, just escalation now um, lately with this invasion by Russia of Ukraine. So we're getting his perspective uh, today. So Corey Flintoff, I want to t- I want to turn to Russia and uh, what the average Russian the the information they're getting. Of course, this is. It was a closed media environment, right? So what would the average he, Russian be getting? Um, actually, uh, very little. Uh, I have talked to Russian friends, and uh, they say basically that the, well, as we know, the even today, the last, uh, the last newspaper, the last independent newspaper in Russia is shutting down because of just, uh, oppressive censorship. It's called Novaya Gazeta. Um, but uh, my friends in Russia tell me that uh, state media are absolutely um, following a, a single Kremlin line, and that is that there is no war in Ukraine. Uh, the word war is forbidden in uh, broadcasting. Uh, you have to call it a special military operation. Um and uh, there is no uh, indication of the damage to uh, Ukrainian cities or anything like that, except to claim that uh, that damage is being caused by Ukrainian Nazis, for instance, in uh, in uh, Mariupol. The absolutely sort of grotesque lie that um, that somehow Ukrainians are doing this to their own people and to themselves. Um, you know, and that was something that was happening when I was there. Uh, it, it started, I arrived in, in 2012, and uh, at that point, the government was already uh, forcing the, the closure or the takeover of various independent news media. And uh, one technique was to have oligarch uh, allies of Putin buy up uh, independent television stations and uh, you know, turn them into government mouthpieces, basically. Um, so what the uh, average Russian is hearing is um, uh, intense anti-Ukrainian uh, propaganda, claims that uh, the Russian government is doing nothing more than preventing uh, a genocide of the Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine, Um and that sort of thing. So, but that propaganda has been so long-standing and so pervasive that people have been hearing it for years. Um, and of course, you know, you tend to believe what you hear on multiple news media in your country. So uh, they say that the uh, the news media has its greatest effect on older people, who tend to be the ones who. Uh, get their news from television. The younger people who get their news from um, the Internet tend to have a a bigger variety of sources, but even that has now been cut off. So people, unless they have uh, VPN networks, uh, are not able to access very much news from the outside. So uh, my understanding is that uh, polling in Russia shows that, that Russians, at least for now, uh, overwhelmingly support um, the government and support uh, the invasion of Ukraine. 
Um, another thing that I noticed when I was there was the military militarization of the Russian populace, pop, population. Pardon me. Um, there is a lot. The Putin government has done a lot to glorify the uh, Russian victory in the Second World War. Um, and in uh, 2015, for instance, they had a, a 75th anniversary uh, celebration of the victory over the Nazis. And it was pervasive throughout uh, Russian society, this, this sort of celebration of our veterans, um, the celebration of the glorious battles, you know, the, the overcoming of the sieges of Stalingrad and Leningrad, um, and people were encouraged to uh, dress to sort of cosplay in uh, Russian World War II uniforms. Um, in every public park in Moscow, for instance, they had commemorations of the war, and uh, you know, in where wartime songs were sung, and uh, there were sort of cosplay wartime encampments. Uh, young. Children were encouraged to, to dress up in uh, military regalia and military caps. They trotted out a few living veterans of the war. And uh, it was all about talking about the sacrifices that Russians had made during the Second World War and basically uh, encouraging the population to feel like um, they should be ready to make that kind of sacrifice, too, if it were necessary. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you think that's continuing now, that uh, Putin, I guess, one way to, to to mobilize the population? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I didn't realize at the time um, how important that was going to be, but I think that was the, the real purpose of it, um, uh, you know, to prepare the population for possible future military adventures. And uh, so... And also, you know, to, to inculcate that kind of uh, uh, kind of blind patriotism in the sense that uh, we have to make tremendous sacrifices. I think that's why, you know, even the sanctions, economic sanctions, are biting quite hard on the Russian economy right now. I think that's one reason why Russians will be able to accept quite a bit of privation, you know, before they really start to react. Hmm. Do you think, uh, you know, if they get bad enough sanctions, the economy gets bad enough, you think that will produce any political pressure at all? Because Putin controls the media, so that's one big factor in his favor. Absolutely, yeah. And the media, the media are saying, you know, the rest of the world is against us. They're trying to keep Russia down. Um, you know, and that, that's been a, a, a continuing theme of Putin's, is that, uh, you know, the rest of the nations are uh, jealous of us, um, our resources, our land mass, you know, our our national spirit, you know, and they will always try to, to crush Russia whenever they can. Um, so I think that that kind of propaganda has given uh, the Putin regime a lot of resilience in terms of what people will accept and, and what people will stand for. So, yeah, I, th- I think it would it would take much more severe privations for people to, to really react and turn against the government. Hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about reporting from a, a, a you know closed media environment like Russia. Did, did you ever get pressure from you know from the state or 
harassment or uh, <laughs> talk about uh, reporting from Moscow? You know, I didn't get an awful lot because um, the, the uh, Russian authorities at the time didn't think that um, uh, NPR was something they had to worry about because our reporting was all to an audience outside of Russia. And, uh, you know, so they, they weren't terribly uh, concerned about what I might say. I did get called on the carpet a couple of times by the um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs press officer, uh, Maria Zaharova, uh, because for things that I said, you know, that, uh, you know, she, she said, you know, that's just, you know, you're just spreading lies. <laughs> so, but none of that was ever severe enough. I never felt that I was going to get kicked out of the country, uh, you know, and uh, um, that seems that may not be the case anymore. You know, our correspondent now, Charles Maines, um, I'm not sure what degree of, of censorship or pressure he may be facing. Uh, one thing that I found when I was there, though, that it became increasingly hard over the course of four years to find people who were willing to talk to me and to talk to me on the record. And by the end, um, after all these things that happened in Ukraine, um, a lot of Russians on the street, for instance, were absolutely unwilling to talk to foreign media. Mm. Well, let's head toward another break here. And before we do, uh, Corey Flintoff, uh, by the way, if you just joined us, Corey Flintoff, a former Moscow bureau chief for NPR, is with us for the hour. Um, of course, NPR, UPR, listener-supported. So membership is very, very important. We're encouraging memberships right now. Um, why Why should someone, maybe the what's what's a key to, to get somebody from being a listener to a member? We know that's a critical journey, right? Um, so what's your encouragement for folks to do that? Uh, well, mine is that, you know, um, this has been a very tough time for, for media of all kinds. You know, we've seen newspapers go under. Um, we've seen uh, commercial broadcasters go under. Um, and those are people who used to have, you know, very strong advertising bases to support them. We've never had that. You know, we've never had, um, you know, we've been able to sell ads or anything like that. So... Um, what sustains us, and uh, one of the things that I really love about this, is that it's a community effort. Um, you know, we are members of our stations. We are uh, we're not we're not just supporters. We're not just donors. We're members, and uh, we're part of a community that both serves us. We serve ourselves uh, with it, but um, it serves the greater good. I think. And, uh, you know, that's that's my reason for encouraging people to become members. Well, that's Corey Flintoff encouraging you. I'm encouraging you as well. And uh, it doesn't take, you know, we don't have to break the bank, right? Uh, you just, uh, whatever you can afford, uh, we pool our resources. It's community effort. And, and it'll work, uh, again, uh, to pay for uh, great uh, reporting, for example, from Ukraine by NPR reporters. Uh, 1-800-826-1495 is the number, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495.
or upr.org, upr.org. Once again, that's upr.org. Great uh, thank you gifts available. You can look at those at upr.org or ask the volunteer when uh, when they answer, uh, when you call 800-826-1495. Uh, one that I might suggest is our new UPR art mug. That's for a pledge of $8 a month. Beautiful design by Teresa Jordan. Uh, you can expand that. If you expand that to $10 a month, you not only get the mug, but you get two stickers uh, for the second and third place in our art mug contest. Uh, so all that's available to you and your support, of course. Very important to UPR and to Access Utah. UPR.org or 800-826-1495. We'll go to a break, come back with our last segment following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is former uh, NPR Moscow Bureau Chief Corey Flintoff. He's talking about, of course, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Also, uh, we've been talking about reporting from Russia. And, uh, uh, well, before we get into uh, the next subject, uh, Corey Flintoff, I just want to report that uh, your friend and ours, Corey, uh, Kathy Ives from South Carolina, just uh, <laughs> just kicked in with her membership. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Kathy Ives. She's always been a great supporter of Utah Public Radio um, and a great friend of mine. I think that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, we, we love Kathy. Kathy, former station manager here, and we do. We just love Kathy. Um, in fact, I think that's how we got connected to you, Corey. It's through, yes, through, through yes, Kathy. as a matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. Well, thanks, Kathy. And won't you join your support with Kathy's? At 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. I know Kathy values uh, what public radio does. Uh, you do as well. It's evidenced by the fact that you're listening right now. Uh, won't you uh, join your support with Kathy's and all the others who have pledged at upr.org or 800-826-1495. Uh, Corey Flintoff, I want to talk about uh, the experience of reporting from conflict zones, from wars, from, you know, the loaded situations. Um, so you, um, you, I think you reported from eastern Ukraine, right, you know, during the, yes. during the Russian takeover. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, it started out uh, when these uh, when these Russian agents were instigating and fomenting the so-called separatist rebellion in Donetsk and and Luhansk, and uh, you know at that point it wasn't terribly clear what was going on, but um, what we saw in town after town is that these. Uh, these groups of agitators would recruit local gangsters um, to take over city halls and police stations in these towns. And um, it was absolutely clear to see when we'd go to interview these people, there'd be, you know, the, the guys who would be guarding these taken over city halls would have, um, have prison tattoos all over them. You know, they were thugs. And uh, the people who were in charge were either opportunistic local um, local criminals or, uh, you know, absolute direct agents of Russia. But what they succeeded in doing was gathering enough local support, you know, to present themselves as separatists. And then with direct support from across the Russian border uh, to 
gradually extend their control of these towns until um, the Ukrainian army had to um, had to react, and uh, then it, it burst into open warfare. At which point, uh, Russia was able to supply both troops and um, and equipment to the so-called separatists. So um, this happened over the course of, of months, and, and you know, and, but it was it was able to give um, an appearance of legitimacy. Uh, in eastern Ukraine, they also conducted fake referenda, and it, it, we went around and and covered those elections and talked to a lot of the voters, and most of the voters were people who were actually voting for. Separate separation. Um, they were. They had been convinced by Russian propaganda that the um, re- the revolution of dignity, as it was called in in Kiev, that overthrew the Yanukovych government, was actually a coup, and uh, uh, that it was illegitimate, and that it was run by Nazis. Um, and so they were convinced to re- to to vote for this uh, uh, so-called. Independence referenda, um, but uh, you know, I, I you know the whole thing was was basically uh, a sham and a, a, a front for Russian aggression. Uh, and once it, it did devolve into outright warfare, it got to be very dangerous for civilian populations there. I remember in Donetsk, which is actually quite a was quite a lovely little town. With a brand new, uh, gorgeous airport, um, and that airport became the center of the fighting between the, the Russian-backed troops and the Ukrainian troops, uh, and which was a fight that went on for years. And every time that I would go back to uh, Donetsk to report, um, you know, you could hear artillery, where uh, the two sides were fighting each other, and finally. Uh, the defenders, uh, the Ukrainian defenders of the airport were overwhelmed, but only after uh, an incredibly violent uh, siege that was kind of a miniature version of what the Russians are now doing in cities like Mariupol, um, uh, essentially winning by destroying whatever the objective was. And this is, uh, you know, we've seen this in Chechnya, right, and Syria as well as a, a tactic, yes. as a tactic, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you about, um, NPR gave us a, a fact sheet, um, I've been reading this, you know, coverage in, in wars, um, and you talked earlier about your, your fixer, or your, so t- tell me about that, you, you get a, I guess a local person that can, can help you out, and they, they, they go around with you. Yes, absolutely, and I'm, and those fixers are, and drivers are absolutely essential when you're covering these things, and of course, it goes without saying that they are the ones who um, who not only have to share all the dangers of going to you know dangerous places, but they do it repeatedly. They live in these areas and they go back to the front lines over and over and over again, and they also face the danger of being identified as somebody who helps foreign media, you know. So they they're they're placing themselves and their families in jeopardy in that way, too. Uh, so, you know, the courage of people that I've worked with uh, as fixers is just unbelievable. The, you know, what it takes to be a good fixer, you need to know your region, 
you need to be uh, very good linguistically. You know, we always needed somebody who who spoke both Ukrainian and Russian and excellent English, you know, to, to go out with us. Um, and one of the things that I discovered about everyone I worked with is that invariably they are optimistic, um, gregarious, friendly. Um, they love their areas and they uh, they're incredibly people oriented and uh, you know it's just inspiring to work with people like that and yeah you know, it sounds like you keep in touch with with your fixtures fixtures and others who helped you I do although right now uh, the the people I work with in Ukraine as fixers I haven't been able to get in touch with and I suspect that's I hope that that's because they're they're working for other organizations right now and they're simply too busy to respond or they're you know out of out of communications regions too which is quite common mm. uh talk to me about um of course npr we've heard a rotating uh group of voices from reporting from ukraine um and this is uh, understand they're all volunteers you know you don't get forced to go into a war zone right but Probably a lot, right, of, exactly. lot of reporters want to go, right, to, to do their job. Um, but, but this is definitely going into harm's way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, and, and we've seen, I mean, we've seen some journalists get killed already. Uh, it's simply because it's so unpredictable in these situations. You never know exactly, uh, you know, where you're going to be when when the action shifts, and, and especially... With things like uh, shelling and missiles, there, you know, if you're anywhere in the target area, it's it, your danger is of, of getting hurt is quite great. Um, and we've seen uh, Russian troops fire on moving civilian cars and things like that. Um, you know, so there's there's the danger, the physical danger of of the military action that's going on, and there's also the dangers of just getting around in places that, where there's been a lot of war damage, um, those roads are in terrible shape. I and mean, they were in bad shape before the war, and uh, they're in terrible shape right now. And one of my great fears uh, in all the wars I covered is that I was going to get killed in a traffic accident or a roadside accident because transportation is so difficult. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's a, you're, in, you're in different conditions each place, I imagine. So... What are your what are your uh, feelings then? I guess you you a lot of empathy for these reporters. You've been in some of these situations. Yes, I I do. Um, like I say, it's so easy um, for things to go south. Um, one of the things I, I always felt safer in Iraq and Afghanistan because uh, when you went out to a place where there's actual active warfare going on, you were with uh, U.S. troops. And, uh, you know, that you had a measure of safety because of that. You know, there was always a possibility that you could get blown up by a roadside bomb or something. But um, the American armor was pretty good. Uh, the American uh, military is quite good, excellent. Um, you know, so that felt safer. But in areas like um, Libya, for instance, or Ukraine, um Everything is pretty ad hoc, uh, and as you, as a reporter, you're traveling around without military protection, and um, you know you don't have the communications that the military has. 
So you don't know always where the battle lines are, and you can find yourself in a in a bad situation fairly quickly. Uh, you can find yourself under fire, and uh, <laughs> that's that's happened to me. I, I laugh now, but it's it's a nervous laughter because uh, it's pretty frightening when you're actually in it. Yeah, I can only imagine. So well, we appreciate your reporting over the years, and uh, appreciate the the NPR. Uh, folks who are in Ukraine and, and Russia and other places uh, helping us out. We're nearing the end of the hour. I want to give uh, one last appeal to, to our members to renew your membership or become a new member to Utah Public Radio. And you support the kind of reporting that you've been hearing from NPR from Ukraine. Uh, money comes directly from you. We pool our resources and we're able to uh, support this kind of reporting. Um, so Corey Flintoff, uh, uh, by the way, I, I didn't give uh, Kathy Ives a uh, full quote here. She said, okay, Corey and Tom, you got me. <laughs> so uh, something you said, <laughs> Corey, so something glad. you said. Um, <laughs> that's not yeah. not very hard with uh, a generous heart like Kathy <laughs> that, Ives. That's true. Um, I, I wanted to, to just say after having, having done this, you know, I am speaking entirely for myself. I am a private citizen now. I've been retired for five years. And, uh, you know, when I, I could never voice these kinds of opinions when I was actually working as a reporter. And, uh, uh, it even, it's difficult for me even now, but I feel that, you know, we have to tell the truth. And, you know, public radio gives us an opportunity to have the truth. It's, it's to tell the truth that's just unparalleled. And that's why I would urge people now to, you know, give your support to Utah Public Radio. Um, we're all in this together, and uh, without your help, we just can't succeed. And here's how to do that. Uh, join your support with uh, Kathy Ives. Uh, respond to this appeal from Corey Flintoff, friend of UPR, former uh, Bosco Bureau Chief for NPR, who's uh, been on with us here. UPR.org is the place to go, the website, UPR.org. That's UPR.org. Or you can call 800-826-1495, 800 800- Eight two six one four nine five. It's very important, of course, that we continue support so that we can get reporting uh, like that that we've been hearing from Ukraine. Important to hear the truth, as Corey Flintoff uh, says. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Uh, Corey, we received uh, this from uh, Doug and Margaret Wozniak. They've uh, called in. They say they're snowbirds from Michigan, so they live in Traverse City, Michigan, and also St. George, uh, Utah. And they've taken the time to to uh, renew their membership here or become members of uh, Utah Public Radio. So our, our thanks uh, thanks to them. Yes, thanks to the Wozniaks. Uh, I love meeting people who, um, you know, in, the, in my, my visits to, to Logan, I've had the chance to meet people who, both from outside of Utah and from and, well, lifelong residents, and uh, I love meeting uh, members of Utah Public Radio because they're among the smartest, most stimulating, more, most interesting people I've ever met. Well, Corey Flintoff, uh, thank you so much. Corey Flintoff, former NPR4 correspondent at Simonson, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. He was NPR Southeast Asia Bureau Chief and Moscow Bureau Chief, and he has joined us from his home in Maryland. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Tom. Really nice being on with you again. And uh, the number, once again, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org. And a big thank you 